When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This coming Monday is Martin Luther King Day, and later on the podcast, we'll be talking with Tavis Smiley about Martin Luther King's last year, the year that began with his speech condemning the war in Vietnam, where he called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet. But first, feminists and Hillary for and against. For a socialist feminist who is not voting for Hillary, we turn to Liza Featherstone. She's a contributing editor to The Nation, where she writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Ms. and Rolling Stone, among many other outlets. She's the author of Selling Women Short, the landmark battle for workers' rights at Walmart. And she's the editor of a new book, False Choices, The Faux-Feminism of Hillary Clinton, forthcoming from Verso Books this spring. We reached her today in New York City. Liza Featherstone, welcome. Thank you, John. Well, if you look at Hillary's campaign website, she says, I am a proud lifelong fighter for women's issues because I firmly believe what's good for women is good for America, close quote. And she's got a big section on what she would do for women, especially poor women, if she were elected. She says she would work to close the pay gap. She would fight for paid family leave. She would make quality, affordable childcare a reality for families. I'm quoting here. She would increase the minimum wage. Of course, most low-wage workers are women. And she says she would defend and enhance Social Security. That sounds like some good reasons for a socialist feminist to support Hillary, but, but you don't. Why not? Well, um, yes, th- those are some nice-sounding um, positions on her website. And one of the reasons is that I think it's always more helpful to look at a candidate's record than to look at the positions that he or she puts out um, on her website. And one of the problems, and you know, Hillary's defenders are always pointing to her vast uh, experience in government. So it's actually a great idea for us to um, take a look at that experience. And um, and some of the things that she's actually um, done have been um, quite horrible for poor women in the um, in Bill Clinton's administration, she um, was 
she was a close advisor. And when he signed the um, Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, which is called, mostly known to those of us normal people as welfare reform. And Hillary advocated that. Um, there were other voices in the Clinton administration who said, no, that's going to um, cause a lot of hardship to poor women and their children. And Hillary advocated it and she defended it years later by saying, you know, look, those uh, those poor women were quote-unquote deadbeats, quote, sitting around the house doing nothing, which is not a very socialist feminist way of looking at the uh, raising of children and um, the important work that women do in their families. So it's really important to look at things like that, to look at what she's actually done as opposed to what she says she'll do. And of course, more recently, Hillary has been Secretary of State for Barack Obama. She is proud yeah. to say uh, she uh, supported military inventions that she said would help free women from oppression. For example, oppression from the Taliban in Afghanistan. Do you think it was good to try to free women from Taliban oppression? Well, it certainly sounds good. I mean, when you read about the Taliban, they sound horrible. And the um, life of women under the Taliban is indeed oppressive. However, um, it doesn't seem as if life for women in Afghanistan um, has gotten significantly better um, as a result of these uh, interventions. And as Secretary of State, these kinds of um, th these impulses toward more war, more intervention. Again, this is something where um, we see Hillary being a voice of more harsh measures, more um, more punitive policies, more aggression in contexts where there were a wide range of voices and um, and debates w within the administration. I think this is the same in the Obama administration as it was in the Clinton administration. And there's a, a rich feminist tradition, not only socialist feminists, but a, a wide range of, of, of feminists ha um, have often tended to oppose war and, um, you know, militarization on the grounds, um, well, on many humanitarian grounds, but at least partly on the grounds that it always makes life worse for women. And during uh, Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, we see rape and femicide increase in Honduras, Iraq, and Libya um, due to interventionist policies that she herself nurtured and executed. So again, I think it's it's fair to look at her experience and it's fair to look at, to judge that experience by its results. And you also uh, argue in the Nation magazine that there's a very specific reason for not supporting Hillary. Uh, in 2016, and that is there is a much better alternative available to Democrats as yeah. a candidate in the primaries. Yeah, there really is. And to be honest, um, I, I don't think I'd feel so strongly about attacking Hillary if there was no good, um, you know, feminist progressive alternative um, to her. But the thing is, 
There really is. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders has um, a long record of fighting for exactly the sorts of things that genuinely make women's lives better. I mean, things like socialized medicine, free college tuition, reproductive health care, not only in the sense that you support abortion rights as a, you know, through um, through slogans or words or legalisms, but because you actually make it part of a Medicare for all uh, healthcare um, system, Bernie Sanders is a much better candidate than we usually have running for president in the United States. And, and that the contrast with the kinds of um, policies he advocates and the kinds of um, policies that Hillary Clinton has um, fought for all her life, there's really um, no contest. Hillary's defenders say uh, Bernie is not going to win the nomination and he could never win the presidency. He's a 74-year-old socialist from Vermont. This is un untenable and unacceptable in American politics that compromises are necessary, that politics is the art of the possible. Uh, Bernie could never be elected and therefore you should support Hillary. What do you say to that argument? Um, I find it so strange that people use that argument in a primary, which in many places is polling rather closely. I mean, and you know, and 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 that people would say that about a candidate who has been attracting uh, astonishingly large crowds. But more importantly, I also think that you know, it's that kind of. Um, it's it's that kind of defeatism that continues to perpetuate and nourish mediocre politicians like Hillary Clinton. You know, that when we constantly say, oh, we just can't do any better, or to quote Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative, um, that's what we get. I mean, it is sort of that kind of pessimism is, really, um, is really self-defeating, and I'd much rather see our... Um, our prominent pundits and intellectuals and journalists think, um, well, what kinds of um, what kinds of arguments and ideas might support all those hardworking people on the ground who are actually trying to create an alternative um, rather than to shut them down? Liza Featherstone, The Nation magazine. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Socialist feminists who are voting for Hillary include Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, columnist for The Nation. Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We reached her today in Vienna, where she's spending the year. Katha, welcome. Hi, John. It's nice to be here. Well, you've pointed uh, to what you call the gendered nature of the attacks on Hillary people who criticize Hillary for doing bad things, but when men do the same things, they don't get criticized. Uh, can you give us some examples? Oh, sure. How about running for president? Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's ambitious. She she expects it. She's She feels she's entitled. Uh, it's a coronation. Nobody criticizes. I mean, look at Bernie Sanders, who, you know, and I want to say, you know, many times that you know, Bernie Sanders is terrific, but a 74-year-old white guy from Vermont decides, hey, I can be president. What's so hard about that? And nobody says, you know, you're a 
74-year-old guy from Vermont. You know, you have no clue about what it is to be president. People don't say that. They say, hey, sure, join the party. A lot of the criticism of Hillary from feminists focuses on the work of the Bill Clinton White House, the Clinton welfare reform, as you well know, threw millions of women and their children into deeper poverty, many into homelessness. Hillary supported that. How can a feminist support any candidate who would attack poor women that way? Well, I totally oppose the welfare reform bill. And I think it was a terrible thing and a mistake. You'll notice, though, nobody's talking about bringing welfare back. I think the idea that women should be supported to stay home with their children uh, is probably an idea we're not going to see again in the United States. There is the idea you should work. You should work. Nothing is free, et cetera, et cetera. And there are too many women in the workforce, too many single, single mothers now who work for a living and support themselves, you know, under with, with, with great struggle for the country to say, okay, if you want to stay home, fine. I just don't think that's in the cards. And you will notice Bernie Sanders is not talking about bringing welfare back either. Then there are the more personal criticisms of Hillary, that she is not a good feminist because she put up with her husband's uh, harassment of women and because she did not support the uh, lawsuits of Paula Jones, Kathleen uh, Willie, and Juanita Broderick, names from the past, when they accused Bill Clinton of sex crimes. Uh, what do you say to that? Oh, I think that's just ridiculous. How many women whose husbands are unfaithful are going to say, yeah, you're a sex criminal? I'm leaving. That happens very rarely. Um, I'm sure she believed that these women were not telling the truth. And you know something? We don't know that they were telling the truth. The claims of all of these women were investigated by every journalistic outfit known to man, and some of them by Ken Starr, um, who was certainly interested in finding dirt on on uh, Bill Clinton, and came up with nothing. So I think that this is really this really a tragedy. If the first woman to really come within, you know, earshot of the White House is deep six because of her husband's sexual shenanigans, that would really be a tragedy. That would really be to say, you know, Caesar doesn't have to be pure, but Caesar's wife has to be pure. And of course, uh, Hillary uh, along with Bill, uh, has been criticized for being too close to Wall Street. There was a recent piece at The Intercept which said Hillary Clinton made a more in 12 speeches to big banks than most of us earn in a lifetime. She made almost $3 million in speeches to big banks, in, including $675,000 for one speech to Goldman Sachs. Uh, this is a reason why socialist feminists and socialists don't support her and why uh, why people support uh, Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton is not an enemy of Wall Street. President Obama is not an enemy of Wall Street. My basic reason for not supporting Bernie Sanders, who I think is, you know, would be, would stands for all the things I believe in, is that I really don't think he can win. I think he would be creamed in the general in the general if he managed to get the nomination you know here's a thing that people don't take enough account of there has been opposition research on hillary clinton for something like three decades 
we know all the bad things about Hillary Clinton. And she is still one of the most popular women in the country. Um, we don't know very much about, about Bernie Sanders. But if he were to win the nomination, all that, there would be, uh, you know, half a billion dollars of opposition research would be devoted to him. And he wouldn't look so good at the end of that because nobody would. Nobody would. You know, I think you're you're right about that. The Republicans are not going after Bernie Sanders right now because they want him to exactly. do well to weaken Hillary. And, and Hillary is not going after Bernie Sanders because she wants to win his supporters, assuming that she gets the, the nomination. So we have you're right that we have not had the kind of attacks and and opposition research on Bernie that we've had on Hillary for for most of her life. now. Yes. But I just want to say, although I would love to see a woman president. And I don't think it's identity politics to say that. I think she would be better. Uh, she would be very, very good on, on issues of having to do with women's rights. Um, and she certainly talks about reproductive rights a lot more than Bernie Sanders does. I think that if Bernie Sanders could pull it out, I would support him wholeheartedly. I'm not against him. It's just that I just, the practical side of me just thinks this is very unlikely. You argue Bernie can't win, but for you, does that mean it's bad to have Bernie challenging Hillary on, on the minimum wage and free college tuition on, on Wall Street? No, I think it's excellent. I think it's excellent that he's running, and I think it's excellent that, he, that they're doing these debates, and I wish they would do more of them and do them at times when people you know, aren't going out on dates. I think it's really great that he's raising all these issues, and he's pushing her to the left. She's changing. I mean, she may not be for free college tuition for everybody, but she's in favor of free college tuition for community college students. And, um, you know, I don't know that she'd be taking that position without him. And maybe it wouldn't even have come up. So I think um, it's great that he's running. I wish him all the best. But in the end, I think whoever the, the Democratic nominee is, is going to have a very, very tough run um, in the general unless it's Donald Trump. <laughs> but if it's what has now come to look like a normal reactionary <laughs> instead of Donald Trump, I think it's going to be very hard. Right now, the fact that Bernie is a, a democratic socialist is not getting much attack. But if he were the candidate, I think the mainstream, don't you think the mainstream media would go completely bananas over a socialist running for president? Yeah, I, I do. I think that once he... If he were to win the primary, the uh, opposition research and the media would really go nuts over the fact that he's a socialist. I, I think that, you know, behind his his campaign is, is the idea that these are things that most Americans, lots of Americans, the majority of Americans can all get behind. Socialism. I don't know that that's so true, that there's much evidence that that's the case. Last question. Why can't Hillary be more like Bernie? Well, beyond people are who they are at the personal level, I think whoever gets that really far ahead in American politics has to take into account uh, all kinds of reactionary uh, economic, political, and social institutions. Um, I don't think it's an accident that Congress isn't, is full of right-wing Republicans and not full of Democratic Socialists. I think, you know, the banks are a fact of life. The insurance companies are a fact of life. You would need an enormous social movement to move 
the government in a different direction. And I'm not sure that a presidential campaign even begins to touch the kind of mobilization that would be necessary. I would imagine, like, let's say Bernie got elected by some miracle, got elected president. I think the same thing that would happen to him that happened to Obama, you know, whose every good instinct uh, was, uh, you know, for years he was trapped. I mean, the Republicans controlled Congress, the Repub- then the Republicans controlled the Senate, um, etc. I think uh, the president is not a king, even a socialist king. Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, columnist for The Nation. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Now it's time to talk with Tavis Smiley. Of course, he's host of the Tavis Smiley Show on PBS and also managing editor. And he also hosts the Tavis Smiley Show on PRI. He's the best-selling author of 16 books. His book, Death of a King, about Martin Luther King's last year, is being published this week in paperback. When I spoke with Tavis Smiley last year when his book first came out, I asked him how he would describe Martin Luther King's last year. Hail, pure hail. You start with that key turning point in King's political life in America, the speech at Riverside uh, Church, New Mm -hmm. York City, April 1967. That's when he came out against the Vietnam War. And what was that memorable line of his? He called America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Now, this is Dr. King, who is highly respected and highly regarded. Uh, As you mentioned, he has a Nobel Peace Prize, and he is um, on the list of the most admired Americans uh, for years running now. Uh, And yet, he's still a black man. This is still the 60s. And he is saying to America, you, America, are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. As you can imagine, that did not sit well with many Americans. Well, it's a a shocking, uh, still a shocking and and unforgettable sentence and and a true one, I Uh think. Uh, So how did, first of all, before we talk about the reaction to that, I wonder how he came to that point where he made the decision to to say that astounding sentence that's a beautiful, uh, in public. Beautiful question. Um, so Martin had been on the record opposed to the war in Vietnam, but had not gotten around to giving a major address laying out why he was so vehemently opposed to this war. He hadn't done that for a number of reasons. Number one, because everybody in his camp, that is to say everybody at SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his organization, was opposed to him taking this issue on. They reposed him taking it on because they knew that it was going to detract from the work that they were doing in the South on voting rights and civil rights and human rights. They said, Martin, that's a mistake, number one. Number two, they knew that if Martin said what they thought he was going to say, all hell was going to break loose. Number three, they knew it was going to dry up their money. I mean, everything that they knew was going to happen, in fact, did happen in spades once he actually came to the decision to give this speech. Uh, and uh, Martin was not the first, you know, Negro out front on the war question. Stokely Carmichael was way ahead of Dr. King, and there were others. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Stokely, you know, giggled about and always took pride in was that he was the one that really sort of pushed <laughs> Dr. King to be more vocal against the war. So the point is that it was these young people, these youngsters 
that were and King is of course young. He's dead at thirty nine, <clears throat> but it was these it was these real young people that were pushing Martin King to be more vocal against the war in Vietnam, almost chiding him at one point about why you won't say more, why you won't do more, why you won't use your voice. So after enough pushing and prodding and praying and 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 and, and soul searching, he decided to give this speech. And if you hear the speech, and you can go online anywhere and Google it these days, you can hear you can hear it or certainly read the transcript. But he starts out by saying, I have come to this place tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. And then he says a beautiful line. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. Mm. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. And so Martin is basically saying, I'm betraying myself. I'm betraying my country. I'm betraying the best of who I am and the best of who we are if I don't come out. And say tonight what I'm about to say. And then he says it. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And then he says something else. That we are essentially, Martin argues, we're going to lose our democracy if we don't get serious about the triple threat facing our country. The triple threat of racism, poverty, and militarism. So as long as he's talking about civil or human rights, mm-hmm. America says, Negro, you, we'll tolerate you. So this is the lane, black man. We're going to let you run in. But ain't nobody asked your opinion about foreign policy. <laughs> and nobody's asking you about, about racism and poverty and militarism. Stay in the lane that we've ascribed for you to run in. And Martin would not be boxed in. And because he would not be boxed in, he gives that speech. And when he got out of that box, all hell broke loose. We go back to where we started. It was a year of pure hell. So what was the response of, of the, let's call it the mainstream media? Mm. I've said many times that there, there, there was no Fox News around, you know, 50 years ago. But had they been around, we can only imagine the field day they would have had just yeah. completely ripping him to shreds. I mean, it had been 24-7 wall-to-wall coverage on Fox News eating him up. Um, so Fox News wasn't around, but they didn't need Fox News then because the liberal media did the Fox News job on Dr. King. So when you read – I'm so glad you asked this. When you read what – and this, we have it in the book – when you read what the New York Times said about him, it is embarrassing. Yeah. When you read what mm-hmm. the Washington Post said about this speech the next day, it's humiliating. When you read what Time Magazine said that week, it, it'll make you cry. I mean, it's just hard to imagine that the liberal media went after Dr. King the way they did. Now, again, you fast forward all these years later with the streets and the schools and the holidays that bear his name and the holiday and the monument in Washington and all of that. It's hard to juxtapose the fact that that the media had just basically turned on him. In the last year of his life, they wouldn't run his op-eds. The New York publishers would not publish the book that he wanted to publish. So he couldn't get an op-ed. They wouldn't publish his book. He couldn't get a paid speech. He was not welcome in black churches. Black politicians didn't want to be photographed or seen with him. The NAACP turned on him. The Urban League turned on him. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. turned on him. Thurgood Marshall turned on him. Ralph Bunch turned on him. The bourgeois elite turned on him because they were upset that Martin was going to damage the relationship that black folk had with Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, to many minds, had been the best pres- the best friend that Negroes had had in the White House since who? Since Lincoln had freed the <laughs> slaves. So they're like, Negro, you're going to mess it up for all of us mm-hmm. by getting into it with Lyndon Johnson. So the bourgeois elite Negroes were mad at him for angering Johnson and messing up that relationship. And the everyday black people, certainly the younger black people, um, were interested in Stokely 
and black power. H. Rap Brown, Huey P. Newton, the Black Panthers. So Martin, in his own community, didn't have a constituency with the bourgeois Negroes or the everyday Negroes. So in the last year of his life, again, we come back to pure hell, pure hate. He really has no constituency. Yeah, I made some uh, notes from your book, Death of a King, of, of uh, what the mainstream media said about mm-hmm. King's speech at Riverside Drive. I'm sure you remember these. The New York Times said, called it disastrous, wasteful, and self-defeating. Mm. The Washington Post called it a grave injury to his natural allies and even graver to himself. Mm. And Life magazine said, comes close to betraying the cause so this was pretty much, as you say, the consensus across the board. Uh, what was his response? The most beautiful thing about this text and the research for this text is that while Martin was depressed at times in the last year, was despondent at times in the last year, sometimes had to cry himself to sleep. Um, he knew there was a bullet out there with his name on it. He's catching hell and hate from everybody inside of his camp. He's uh, being he has to deal with his own board voting to condemn him for coming out against the war. His treasurer, James Harrison, he doesn't know this at the time, of course, but James Harrison, his treasurer, is on the FBI payroll. His photographer, Ernest Withers, is on the FBI payroll. So he's being sold out from the inside, catching hell and hate from the outside. The media is against him. Uh, the White House is against him. White America is against him. Black America is against him. He knows there's a bullet out there with his name on it. And every day he's trying to get up to your question, and find the courage, the conviction, the commitment, the character to keep trying to tell the truth as he knew it. How does he respond to your question? He has to pull and pray himself through the depression, the despondency, and the mania that he was feeling because of the way that everybody was coming at him. There's a story in the book, as you know. Um, and let me just back up. In the last year of his life, Martin is hospitalized a number of times. The official reason for his hospitalization was always exhaustion. And to be sure, he's running from pillar to post. You've seen this hectic schedule he had the last year of his life trying to organize the Poor People's Campaign. He's on the move all the time. So to be sure, he's exhausted. But he also has a sense of mania. So again, I'm back to your question. How does Martin deal with it? He deals with it by pulling and praying and pushing and powering himself through, sometimes through tears, though. One day he's trying to get out of his, out of his room. He's dressed fully clothed, as I said. Gets to the door. The depression hits him. He can't even get out the door. He gets back in the bed, pulls the covers over his head, fully dressed, cries himself to sleep. There's another night. His doctors tell him from being so exhausted that he needs to get uh, get away for a few days. He goes to Jamaica with some of his staff members uh, to get away. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, they come to check on Martin, and they go into the bedroom, and they can't find him. Now, they're scared because he's got death threats every day. They know he's depressed. When Martin was a child, and you can read this in the book, of course, when he was a child at 12 years of age, he tried to commit suicide. I'll let you, I'll leave that hanging for a second. He tried to kill himself when he was 12. So this mania had followed him his whole life. So they were worried about Martin. Three o'clock in the morning, they can't find him in his room. They walk all around the room. They go to the hallway. They go to the lobby. They're searching everywhere. They can't find him. Has he killed himself? Has he been kidnapped? I mean, what's happened to him? They finally remember that the hotel suite he was staying in had a a balcony that wrapped around the bed, around the room, rather. So they'd gone out to the the balcony and didn't see him. They forgot it went around to the other side. So they walk around to this L-shaped balcony. They walk around to the other side, and there's Martin King at 3 o'clock in the morning with his pajamas on, and he's looking out at the ocean, and there's a huge rock out in the middle of the ocean. And he's staring at that rock, tears running down his face, 3 in the morning with his pajamas on, and he's singing over and over again, 
an old gospel hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The song, as you well know, is a song, uh, the, 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 lyric, the lyric of the song is basically saying, Rock of ages, cleft for me. I, I just want to hide myself in your bosom. I want to escape this and get away from this. Martin knows his time is coming to an end, and he just wants to hide in the bosom of his Savior. And they say, Martin, what's wrong? Why are you out here? And they can't console him. And, and once they know that he's essentially okay, he's alive, they leave him to himself. They come back at 8 o'clock in the morning. Martin is still standing in the same spot with his pajamas on, singing that same song. So that's the long answer to your very short question. <laughs> but he has to pull and push and pray and power himself through these moments of depression and despondency and hell and hate because he knows that he's telling the truth, even though it's too subversive for us to handle. Does that answer your question? Ooh. So the year that began with the furor over King's uh, Riverside speech criticizing the Vietnam War ended, of course, in Memphis. Mm -hmm. What was King's Memphis campaign about? The Memphis campaign, in short, was was a test run. Um, King had not planned it this way. Uh, he had no idea that conditions in Memphis were going to galvanize these sanitation workers to fight for their rights and to demand the kind of respect uh, that they deserve, the kind of respect for their humanity and their dignity. Um, so he didn't obviously know that was coming. But, you know, sometimes, you know, as we say in the, in the black church, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And so here is a campaign about poverty. King is working on a national campaign about poverty. He's traveling the country, organizing what he called the poor people's campaign. As I say in the book, King was going to be the original Occupy. We think of Occupy Zuccotti Park, New York City. But King wasn't going to New York. He was going to Washington to the nation's capital, on the National Mall, where there now sits a monument honoring him, he was going to the National Mall to organize and to roll out what he called the Poor People's Campaign. They were going to set up a tent city. King and thousands of others were going to camp out and live on the National Mall in tents and stay for as long as they needed to embarrass Congress and the White House to do something about poverty. Why? Because Johnson has called for a war on poverty, but now he's engaged on the war in Vietnam. And King is saying that war is the enemy of the poor. The bombs you're dropping in Hanoi are landing in the ghettos and barrios of America's cities. King is saying that our priorities are wrong. King is saying, and I love this, um, that, that, that budgets are moral documents. <laughs> budgets fabulous. are moral documents. That's what King is saying. So he's headed to Washington as he's organizing this campaign. So up jumps this opportunity in Memphis for him to go to Memphis on the issue of poverty and to use this as a, a jumping off point for his larger and broader national campaign. So when the, when the call came um, against the advice of all of his staff, just like they advised him against speaking out against Vietnam, King says, we're going to Memphis. He goes the first time. And as you know, cause you teach this stuff, the first time he goes, a uh, 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 a mini riot breaks out, an uprising breaks out because there are some young folk who infiltrate this march and they start breaking windows and throwing rocks. And so the first march devolves into violence and the national media has a field day with this. King has lost control. He can't even he can't control his own people. His violence message is no longer resonating. He's out. He's he's, he's out of step and out of time. And he's no longer the leader that he once was. It's you can imagine the storyline. That was being played out in the media, and King was embarrassed by that, and they blamed everything on him. He had nothing to do with it. 
He's there to lead a peaceful march, but he, of course, got blamed for everything. So King says, I'm going back to Memphis in a couple of weeks, and we're going to do this again, and my team is going to organize this, not the people in Memphis. We're going to bring my team in from Atlanta. We're going to organize this march, and we're going to do it right the second time. Of course, as you know, the march never happened. Well, it did happen, but King was assassinated prior to it happening, and they went through with it anyway. Coretta went to Memphis and and continued that fight. Uh, but um, Martin never made that second march. Tava Smiley, you've written something like 16 books. Uh, the latest, newest one, Death of a King, the real story of Dr. Martin Luther King's final year. What was it like for you to write this one? Um, the greatest joy of my life. Uh, in terms of my, in terms of my my, my career and, and work in literature, um, when I was a twelve year old kid, I fell in love with Dr. King. So I've been studying King since I was literally a child. Uh, prior to my becoming a teenager, I was in love with Dr. King, and all my life, everything I get my hands on, I've read and listened and watched and and researched everything there is about King. Over the years, I've become friends with his three principal biographers, Taylor Branch and David Garrow and Claiborne Carson. They're friends of mine. I talked to all of them before writing this book and what I wanted to do. And I wanted to just look at that last year because I think it's the most dynamic year of his life and it shows who Martin really is. When all the hell and all the hate's coming at him, Martin still stands in his truth. He doesn't back down. He doesn't let Hoover and others, you know, uh, blackmail him with the stuff they think they have on him. He stands in his truth. So this is the Martin that I love the most. The one when when everything is coming at him, he doesn't he doesn't falter. He doesn't give in. Now, I love that Martin more than the Martin of the Montgomery bus boycott, more than the Martin of the March on Washington, more than the Martin of the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act, more than the Martin of the Nobel Peace Prize. This is the Martin in this last year who I love the most because of the way that he would not let misery have the last word. Martin was going to be heard. He was going to speak his truth. And all these years later, as we established earlier in this conversation, all the accolade proved that Martin was right, but it took us a long time to catch up to him. And so this is the book that I've been wanting to write literally since I was a kid. It took me a while to get there. Uh, and, I, and I wanted to do something, as you said earlier, that, that was different than all the other great work that's already been done about him. And I hope, again, this book does two things. I hope that one... It gives people some deeper and greater insight into the life and legacy of Dr. King, certainly as one sees what happens to him in this last year. But I also hope for something else, that this book becomes a cautionary tale to those of us who live and work today because there's a message here. And the message is simply this, that our society pays a heavy price when we ignore the truth tellers amongst us. It's not easy to tell the truth these days because people are so cynical and people don't want to hear the truth. Um, and, and you look at Martin. What happens when you tell the truth is first they, they, they abandon you. That's what happens to Martin. They abandon you and then they isolate you and it makes it easier for somebody else to assassinate you, either literally or certainly character assassination. But that's what we do to people. We, we don't want to hear the truth, so we abandon them. As I say, we give them the Heisman. We abandon them, and then we isolate them, and then we assassinate them. And that's what happened to Dr. King. But what price does our society pay when we ignore people telling us the truth about the environment? Climate change and global warming is real. This ain't no joke, even though people want to make it a joke. When we ignore the truth tellers about poverty threatening our democracy, I believe that poverty is now a matter of national security. And if so, written in a book called The Rich and the Rest of Us, which we talked about with Cornell West. So poverty, we don't want to hear the truth about that. We don't want to hear the truth about a drone program on steroids 
that's killing far too many innocent women and children and making more enemies for us as their survivors grow older. Um, uh, we don't want to hear the truth about torture and Guantanamo. And, you know, I mean, there's just so many things about which we don't, certainly don't want to hear the truth about you know, the money in our politics. And, and you know, we call it a democracy, but it's more and more looking like an oligarchy or a plutocracy. We don't want to hear the truth about that. So people are trying to tell us the truth. We keep ignoring it. And long term, we're going to pay a heavy price for that. So I hope this book, again, is not just about King, but a cautionary tale for those of us today about how somebody, somebody has got to tell the truth. It's not easy to tell the truth. But Tava Smiley does it every day and in his new book, Death of a King, The Real Story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Final Year. Tava Smiley, thanks so much for this book. Uh, and great, thanks for coming in uh, today. Great, great, great honor to be with you. Thank you. Tava Smiley's book, Death of a King, is being published this week in paperback. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses from social media marketing to TV writing. Find out more at emerson.edu. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.